You are listening to Humanities Unbound, a public humanities podcast produced by Taft Research Center, a center dedicated to excellence in humanities and social science research located at the University of Cincinnati. Taft Research Center is generously funded by the Charles Phelps Taft Memorial Fund. My name is Caitlin Lusher, and I am a graduate assistant at the Taft Research Center. In this special episode for Native American Heritage Month, I'm talking to three guests, Stephen Blackbear LaBeouf from the You Are Not Alone Network, Dr. Joy Gritton, Associate Professor of Art History at Moorhead State University, and Helen Danzer, Chair of the Kentucky Native American Heritage Commission. Well, it's wonderful to have you all here today at the University of Cincinnati. So uh, I'm going to just get started. So this is a special episode for uh, Native American Heritage Month. Um, So the first question that I have for all three of you, um, in one way or another, uh, all of you are focused on teaching others about Native American heritage and issues in the Native American community, whether it be through art, history, or mental health awareness. So uh, can each of you briefly explain the work you do and its mission? Well, my name is Stephen LaBeouf, but my Indian name is Black Bear. And I've been doing suicide prevention, crisis intervention among young people for 35 years. And we have a nonprofit that is called the You Are Not Alone Network. Uh, And three of us work with it, and we focus on young people mostly Native American young people, but we all hurt at different times. So we use the art as a way for young people to have a voice, to give voice to what's going on with them. And a lot of the work we do is we go to different communities, primarily out west and other things to do work in reservations, But we also work a lot on social media because young people today use social media as a way to communicate. This is Joy Gritton, and I... My focus is both Native American studies as well as Appalachian studies. I coordinate the the Appalachian studies program at at, um, Moorhead State University, but I have been a a, a student, um, someone who has uh, avidly learned about Native American cultures for, I guess I'm telling my age here, for close to 40 years now. And um, I teach both Native American art history classes as well as other art history classes at MSU that uh, look globally at at different traditions, particularly indigenous traditions around the world. I'm Helen Dancer. I'm chair of the Kentucky Native American Heritage Commission. As chair of the commission, it is my responsibility to stay within the confines of what the commission's work is, which is primarily preservation and education, but uh, I tend to stretch that as far as I can. Uh, What we are doing in the community is trying to educate the community and community leaders about uh, the presence of uh, indigenous peoples in the Commonwealth, the preservation and the history of what was left there, uh, 
the activities that we are involved in today and to engage with uh, the legislative body when possible and all of the educational systems within the Commonwealth. And we are beginning to look at engaging the um, uh, higher education levels in terms of looking at what the indigenous uh, bring and what their special needs are in the Commonwealth. So um, today at UC, uh, you will all be speaking um, on a panel, and the panel is called Native American Healing Through Art. So um, it's interesting that you use the word healing here. So um, I'd like to know um, from each of your perspectives, uh, like what is this wound to be healed? If you could comment on that. Well, make it plural because we're talking about many wounds, mm. historical trauma when they took our lands, when they put us in boarding schools and the whole thing of trying to take the Indian out of the Indian. Uh, they took the lands because they wanted the lands because of sometimes it was gold, sometimes it was other thing. And so they tried to take all of those things away from us. And unfortunately today, those reservations are primarily covered by the federal government. There are some state government recognized tribes, but primarily federal. And because that is so, that funding comes from the federal government. The Indian Health Service, Indian Education, uh, Bureau of Indian Affairs, everything else, and they control uh, the resources that we have through that federal funding. And that makes Native peoples being dependent upon that. And even though we talk about tribal sovereignty, every time we use it to say we have tribal sovereignty within the federal government, we'll turn around and it'll say, well, okay, well then we'll take the funding away. And then essentially people crumble because they don't want to lose the money. And all of this is control. It creates all kinds of trauma on the reservations because of the funding and the ability to have their own control over developing their own businesses and everything else, then what happens is you have a lot of them that are poverty-stricken, a lot of alcoholism and drug use and everything else, and the dependency upon those programs. And so that creates the trauma and the hurts. And the second part of that is because they're doing that, they essentially have destroyed a lot of the understanding, the living, based upon our traditional cultures. Yeah, thank you for that distinction. Thank you. And I think that Native peoples, because of these historical traumas, have experienced these wounds earlier and have been, um, they've had a longer history of this, if we can talk about disease in the, in the sense of disease in the sense of dis-ease. 
And I think that this is becoming a, a far more widespread problem and stemming from different reasons, but nevertheless a, a separation of many peoples today from the land, from nature, from a, a clear connection to however you want to define spirit, um, but from the spirit world, from community, from each other, and as Black Bear mentioned, you know, from any sense of autonomy, of your own capacity to contribute in a healthy way, your own healthy sense of identity. And I think that's plaguing many peoples uh, today, and the, the, the wound is growing, um, unfortunately. And I think going back and looking at how indigenous peoples organized their communities, how inclusive they were, how they, they acted to prevent wounds, and not just to treat things after they happen, but to prevent that from happening. We have a lot that we can learn to apply to our communities today. Thank you. And I want to bring the healing of the wounds east of the Mississippi River off the reservation. Everyone forgets that uh, when those marches west occurred, not everyone went. There was a family in Cherokee, North Carolina, who actually negotiated with the Army that if you will let my sons and me surrender to you and let you do whatever you will with us, if you will let my people go into these hills and stay and not pursue them. We will submit ourselves to you without question. That is one of the unwritten agreements with the U.S. federal government that was kept. And so there are in the Appalachian regions and North Carolina, Kentucky, Ohio, Tennessee, Pennsylvania, the Virginias, a host of descendants of those people. Our wounds are as significant as those on the reservation because while not detracting from the wounds there, we also were stripped of our identity. We belong neither in the white man's world nor do we belong in the Indian man's world. And therefore, we are in no man's land. It is as though our total identity is removed and taken from us. And there needs to be healing across tribes, state-recognized tribes, federally-recognized tribes, unrecognized Indian peoples of all sorts, and then there needs to be healing among all of those entities with the dominant culture and all of the admixtures who are coming into what we call Turtle Island. Thank you. Additionally, a lot of the things that we don't understand is that cultures of any kind anywhere come out of the relationship to the land itself. Okay, that means whether it's mountains or desert or woodlands, the culture comes out of living in that because that gives you the understanding and the basis for 
what your weather patterns are, what foods you have available for you, both the kind that you eat and also for medicinal purposes for healing. That culture comes out of that, and that is based with language, traditional ways, teachings, and everything else. When you're not living that anymore, whether it's east of the Mississippi, west, or any other place, and you're living and you're going to Starbucks or, you know, McDonald's or anything like that, or your total time is spent on your cell phones, you're not living those traditions anymore. And if you don't know those traditions, you have to, you start losing who you are. And if you want to understand who you are, you have to go back and you have to understand who your people are, where they are from, what their traditions were, and you start trying to practice those again. And that's a part of the healing process. I will echo what my friend Black Bear has said because I have experienced that. I have experienced not knowing and yet not feeling at home in my own skin. And for me, the Indian community, the indigenous community as a whole to me is home. It is where I live, it's where I belong. It's where I reach my greatest level of connectedness. And just as a follow-up, and it, it echoes the whole thing that we're talking about, as people don't understand, we're just not talking about native peoples here. But if you talk about a gang, we're talking about rites of passage. And in those rites of passage, you have to commit to it. You have to learn their language, their landscape, where they are, and everything else. And often you're forced to go through things in the same way. If you're talking about in an urban area, you have a whole different culture that comes out of that. You have gated communities, and those are different cultures. Here, what we're trying to talk about and understand is native peoples that come out of cultures that were based in a particular landscape and the traditions in our lifetime and what we were taught and everything. And we're losing those unless we spend the time to reclaim them and live them, not just talk about them. Yes. Yes, thank you. Wow, that was a good question, I guess. <laughs> Um, so, um, it, the question I have next actually, I, I feel like does have some connection to what all three of you said, um, and that, uh, all of you in, in, in some sense are very much engaged, uh, with your communities. And so I guess I wonder, um, it, you know, if this is like possible to answer, like how, like your work with the community you know, in some ways, like, you know, brings, like, knowledge and awareness about um, just what Native American heritage is and what it means to, like, a broader public. Uh, for, 
for me, working with, and not being native, I wanted to make that clear. I'm, I'm not native. I've been very fortunate to have been welcomed into native communities. And I spent a number of years teaching at the Institute for American Indian Arts in Santa Fe and learned a tremendous amount from my very diverse students who were from all different tribal groups. But I, I live and teach now in the Appalachian region, so you have the indigenous presence in that region, uh, but you also have an admixture of many peoples of many different backgrounds that have come into that region. And I see a lot of comparisons for what is going on today in Appalachia with what is going on with many indigenous peoples around the world in terms of not only um, you know disconnection sometimes with the land, but um, the desecration of the land that has occurred through um, surface mining and, and different things that the attempt to, you know, and this is, is this occurred on a lot of tribal lands, uh, you know, the, the attempts to, you know, through mining or, um, you know, if we're talking about gas lines, we're talking about all sorts of things, non-renewable uh, energy sources, et cetera, that are being extricated or transported through uh, the lands that, um, you know, if, if if you hurt the land, then you hurt the people as well. And so there's there's that kind of a wound. I see that kind of connection between what's happening at large in the region and what's happening um, with Native communities. But I also see connections in terms of the history of being stereotyped, of people not understanding your cultural traditions, not understanding you, belittling you, um, and it's it's rampant. I mean, the, the, the stereotypes of indigenous peoples and the stereotypes of, of Appalachian peoples. There's also a history of um, people coming in from the outside because of these stereotypes, because of the denigration of the peoples, and uh, trying to get them to leave their, their ways behind, to abandon their culture, uh, to speak a different language or to speak English differently so you don't have an accent, you don't use dialect, etc. Um, a lot of the education uh, in Appalachia was very much like education for indigenous peoples. It's trying to get the Appalachian out of you uh, so that you can get out of here and be quote, successful, unquote. Um, and that's certainly been true for the education, which has been far more brutal um, in Indian communities. So I see a lot of the same problems that they have had to encounter, and unfortunately, a lot of the same results. In um, we're, we're looking at high levels of, of impoverishment, um, and you know you can you can cope to a certain extent with impoverishment that it, we we're just talking about finances, but that kind of stereotyping, that kind of beating you down, that kind of desecration of your land, leads to a different kind of impoverishment of no longer believing in yourself, of feeling like you're not as good as. And then that can lead to all kinds of issues of substance abuse, sometimes domestic violence, um, sometimes uh, abuse or neglect of children. I mean, I'm just being really honest here because we see it in, in Native communities and we see it in Appalachian communities. There's a lot of wonderful strengths, but there are a lot of people who are very lost because of what has happened to them. And so I, I think, you know, my own work in... In, Apple, 
Alachian communities has made me pause and reflect on what I have learned from Native communities and to get at some of the root causes and then also to help me seek out solutions. And I think that if we go back and we look at, it's not that we're going to go back to the old ways wholesale. Too much of the world has changed. We can't, we can't go back and, and put the cell phone in the, you know, put that genie back in the in the box. I mean, it's, it's here. But there are a lot of lessons that are equally valid, a lot of ways that are equally valid. Black Bear mentioned initiation rights, for example. I think a lot of our young people are lost because those kind of initiation rights aren't there for them. Transitioning from childhood to adulthood is is very painful and um, I think that if we learned from indigenous ways and could modify uh, those for a lot of young people it would be very helpful and then just helping young people through education through learning about the past to understand what has been lost I think would be helpful because then they understand what is happening to them, what they're, what they're experiencing now, that they don't feel like it's somehow they're just uh, at fault and inept and there's something wrong with them, but they understand how they got to the place where they're at. Thank you. There's other things that we need to kind of understand what's going on, and I, I'm bringing this up because we're talking about climate change, for instance. And a part of that has to do with overpopulation. And one of the lessons that just is a common understanding with Native peoples anywhere in the world, any species that overpopulates is going to consume all the resources around it and then will die out. Now the world, when that happens, will create a new way of life, but not as we know it. Now in doing this, the world population of humans, we're doing that. We're clear cutting, we're taking all of the resources, everything else, we're polluting our sacred waters, and we need water, that's a major part of our lives, and we're polluting the air and everything else. Now, in order to helpfully understand that and do something about it, you really need to go back and look at in indigenous ways and the way that they lived and they protected it because the Mother Earth is sacred to us, water is sacred to us. A quick example because it's deer season right now. Who goes out and goes deer hunting? Why do they go out to deer hunt? Most of them, they're doing it for trophy. And we're going to talk about art in the same respect pretty soon, the definition of art. But they're not doing it. They're not going out and making an offering and a prayer and then taking that deer. You're taking its life. You're not using it for food, doing buckskin, other things like that. So what you're really doing is you're doing it for trophies, and everybody's, they're living their lives like that now. The more trophies you have, by the broader de definition, you got 
huge mansions. What are you doing with the space? Well, I got a huge mansion. <laughs> it doesn't matter. But you have to understand how this is all related to what's going on in this world. And I think Native traditions and teachings help you understand exactly what's going on. And if we have any chance of changing climate, what's going on with climate change, we need to come back to and think about those ways. Thank you. I had the opportunity a few weeks back to participate with the um, NAAAE, which is an environmental education group. So one of the things that uh, I'm going to be looking at uh, from the commission standpoint is to see how we as indigenous in Kentucky can uh, work with NAAAE to spread the education to collaborate together so that maybe our voices together can make a greater impact in terms of just what Blackberry is speaking about there in relationship to the water, to the land, to the total environment, the air, um, because in the indigenous culture, everything is alive and everything is sacred. And uh, if we can begin to develop allies to spread the message, perhaps we can get it heard over a wider population. And in relationship to what uh, Joy was talking about in Appalachian country, I'm one of those people who got told by a New Yorker to change the way that I speak, and I could do all kinds of wonderful things. <laughs> Being a stubborn Indian, <laughs> I said, thank you very much, and I did not talk to that New Yorker again. <laughs> uh, okay, so um, we were discussing this before um, before we got started, this uh, kind of complicated question about land rights, um, because I feel like oftentimes when people talk about Native American heritage, especially if they are from outside of the community, if they are, you know, don't know a whole lot about it, um, you know, land rights are so, is something that they might think of automatically. And uh, so the question I originally had was, you know, how are land rights part of the conversation in your own work, like either directly or indirectly? But I think in many ways um, you've all addressed that to some extent. But um, I know, Helen, you had some, uh, commentary about like what you know, what we, where we might be able to um, look if we wanted to know more about land rights. Correct. Right now, yes, uh, the uh, National Congress of the American Indian uh, at the last three or four congresses that I've been fortunate to attend, land rights uh, and land reclamation uh, was on the agenda in some fashion or another. So 
I would direct anyone who really wanted to have a better understanding of indigenous land rights to uh, get in touch with the uh, National Congress of the American Indian. You can Google that. Uh, you can just Google NCAI and it will bring it up. Uh, it will have a uh, link there that will connect you with the Native Rights Fund and uh, they can uh, help on education of land rights, and so could uh, the um, uh, legal offices of the NCAI. Okay, so um, I have a question that is specifically for um, Joy and Black Bear. Uh, so why is art so important for understanding uh, Native American heritage, and how do you see its role in educational contexts? Well, I think one of the things that we have to grapple with here is is this word art, and Black Bear alluded to this earlier, because art generally in the Western world implies individual self-expression, and often, unfortunately, today implies a a commodity value. Um, Rightfully, are artists paid for their work? Um, artists have to pay their mortgage or rent and, and put food on their family's tables, etc. So I am not in any way uh, demeaning uh, professional artists who hope to make a living from that which they enjoy so much and which can benefit all of us. But in indigenous peoples, not just Native American peoples, but peoples all around the world, um, Creativity was deeply rooted in the community and in the worldview and was at the service of the larger community. Often you did not have the right to simply use any symbol you wanted to use, any image you wanted to use. Um, often it was not about you personally and your personal expression. It was about community needs of well-being. There were times when uh, imagery that was used would be very individual. I'm thinking in terms of, say, a playing shield, when the imagery might be derived from someone's individual war exploits or an individual's uh, vision that they had, for example. But often, this creativity was used within the context of ceremony. So, and that would mean not only visual arts, things that were were painted, um, you know, that you had with the hide, you had to, to tan it, you you painted it, you may apply beadwork or uh, before beadwork, quill work. Um, you may be creating a pottery that was going to be used in, in a ceremony. And this would entail storytelling, it would entail songs, it would entail dance, what today the Western world might uh, refer to as theater. All of that was a part of ceremonies that were designed to prevent individuals from being disconnected, not knowing who they, they are, uh, not being connected to other members of the community, um, not understanding the natural world around them, not understanding the spirit uh, world. And so these, this creativity, the, these skills, 
um, the intellect and also the imagination would be put at the service of, of the larger community. And I, I don't see that as a sacrifice. I mean, every, every individual that, that carved and painted a mask, for example, you're going to be able to tell one individual's mask from another individual's mask. It's going to have that individuality. But the end goal was to serve something larger than yourself. And I know that many Western artists have that as a goal as well. I, I don't want to be you know, drawing hardline distinctions. But I, I think when we're talking about this, the A word, um, art, sometimes there's, uh, there's a disconnect between how it's viewed today. It's, these objects were, they, they are on gallery and, and museum walls today. They're being sold by art auction houses for exorbitant prices. But that's not what they were intended for. And I, I think that that's something that's important for people to understand. And there are some things that are not meant to be seen outside the context of certain ceremonies and not meant to be seen by other peoples. And that's a hard thing for some people to swallow in our very individualistic society that, no, you don't have the right to view that mask and that should not be put on display, et cetera. So. I think throughout history, again, all indigenous peoples use different forms that we now consider arts, dance, storytelling, theater, poetry, creative writing. Those are all forms of creative expression, but they're now kind of labeled as the arts. And we have to get away from that limiting definition. If somebody goes out and creates a garden, for instance, for themselves, mixing foods that they can eat and everything with flowers and creates this, you know, nice atmosphere of feeling like your, your home is decorated. That's creating good cooking. People who take the time to cook instead of just buying their stuff. That's creative. Creative ways in raising your children. Young people would get out and they would play in the, along the creeks and they would take rocks and sticks and everything and they would create. Okay, and a lot of times today we think of, again, going back to the limitation of the way art is defined because art then becomes a commodity. I did pottery for almost 30 years, and I did it. I learned how to do it from a Pueblo woman that I was married to at that time, her mother, and I learned it from another person that was from Peru. I did it, and I did different markets, the Indian market in Santa Fe. I did the Idol Jewelry in Indianapolis. I did another one at Haskell. And I used to make a good living off of it, and I enjoyed it. But pretty soon, I was doing the same, exact same forms and the same designs because I knew they sold well. And then once I started doing that, it no longer became creating. I was just producing, and I was producing an art or commodity. Right. Thank you. 
Um, and I appreciate how um, both of you um, made, you know, uh, specifically said uh, indigenous peoples all over the world because um, I've been phrasing things as, you know, Native Americans specifically, um, you know, because, uh, you know, it is you know, Native American History uh, Heritage Month. But um, I think that it is very important, right, to recognize that, you know, there are indigenous peoples all over the world. So thank you for bringing up that uh, distinction. Um, so a uh, follow-up question I have here is, um, you know, like understanding a particular perspective is essential to fostering community, and um, oftentimes this is thought to stem from storytelling. So, um, and you may, you may have answered this in like some form or another, um, but maybe if you could be more like, like kind of like explicitly say, so like how is art a form of storytelling. A quick example, Mm -hmm. and there are many examples that Helen may talk about and other people. Back home, I'm from the Blackfeet tribe, right next to the Canadian border, east slope of the Rockies. It gets down 60 below, sometimes 80 mile per hour winds coming off the east slope of the Rockies. Okay. In the springtime, you begin having your ceremonies that prepare you for the spring, new growth, new life. And then you go through the summer and you're preparing again for the coming fall and the winter. Now, you have to be prepared in order to survive. Now, during those winter months and late fall months, you're often confined by the weather patterns and everything to living in the traditional teepees. Okay. When you're in there, what would happen would be then they would start talking and teaching you the traditions and using storytelling as a way to, so you began to understand what those came out of. That was the real storytelling. And that's the way young people learned, because young people sat and had to listen to those stories so they would understand what it was about. And that's what I consider storytelling in the traditions. And, you know, one thing that pops into my mind are the the amazing uh, performances that were performed at at Potlatches in the Northwest Coast. and parts of other ceremonies, initiation rites, where you had these extraordinary, huge, carved and painted masks that, you know, they, they would be transformation masks where, you know, they would open up and, you know, it, it would look like a particular bird and then you open it up and and you see the, the spirit or a transformation mask where they're telling a story about a bird that transformed into a human or vice versa. And, and then there was a dance that went with that. There's a song that goes with that. But it, as Blackberry says, it's, it's teaching the young people where they came from. It's teaching them about their ancestors. It's also stories that are teaching them as well appropriate conduct. What happens when you're greedy? Um, what happens when you don't listen to the elders? Um, you know, so that 
the behavior that is expected and that's going to be conducive to people living with less conflict, uh, living well amongst one another, that's reinforced through these stories. But there were all kinds of, of art forms that went into that, that telling. I, I, I had to ask you, what, you had like this smile on your face when she said uh, uh, something about like story, like conduct stories. I was like, oh boy, I want to hear. <laughs> uh, when I present to um, kids at school and I missed a presentation yesterday because in Jackson County, uh, the weather was severe enough that school was canceled. But when I'm presenting to uh, young people, and sometimes even with adults, I will talk about the fact that uh, our ancestors did not uh, discipline uh, the children in the same manner as which people discipline their children in today's world, that uh, storytelling was used as these two so clearly indicated as a form of discipline. And I have two stories that I inevitably will use in that classroom to talk about how that was actually done. I use the story of how the possum lost his bushy tail. <laughs> And that speaks to what Joy was talking about. Uh, when you get too arrogant, you get too greedy, and you uh, want to uh, uh, be sort of pompous and uh, <laughs> and show off. And then I use the story about the rattlesnake. And the rattlesnake will go back to what uh, Bear was talking about when he was talking about the cults and the gangs and the myriad um, organizations that are created because people have a disconnect and they don't feel like they belong anyplace. And so somebody gets a brilliant idea that they will fix this, they will have this cult, and uh, everybody will be very happy, and maybe it works out and maybe it doesn't. So the story of the rattlesnake talks about or tells the story of what happens when you disrespect the rattlesnake. Mm. And it's a painful lesson. That lesson is painful to death. And that's in the story. So what I try to convey to the audience, regardless of their age, the tail end of that story is when the young lad says, you promised, why did you bite me? And he said, you knew what I was when you picked me up. And so I try to get the message across that this is how we would talk with our kids. And remember, the drugs are the rattlesnake. Alcoholism is the rattlesnake. The cults are the rattlesnake. You, knew, you know what they are. And so we have to build the community so our kids feel welcome. They feel at home. They understand their place. They have a valued place. Now, there are a whole host of other stories, but these are the two that I see from indigenous, from U.S. continental indigenous people's lives that speak best to what our kids currently face today. I would like to follow up on that. You know, so often we we have this philosophy of we're just going to tell kids, no, just say no. 
I don't know of any young person that you know starts out thinking I, I want to be a drug addict. I want to be addicted to drugs. That's not that's not their goal. That's not how they end up there. There's a void. And if we don't, in our communities, as Helen was saying, fill that void and bring a, uh, a young person into the community and allow them to fully participate and feel like they have a meaningful contribution, they're going to fill that void somehow. And, and some of the ways they're going to fill it are not going to be healthy. I, did, I had a student who did a study asking other young people why they don't get involved in their community. And the response that, that she heard most often really kind of surprised all of us. We, we thought it would be, I don't have time, or, you know, I'm busy as a student, and, you know, and then I'm working two jobs or whatever. But it was, I don't really feel included. I don't know how to connect with community in order to volunteer or in order to do community service or, or get it, uh, participate. And that really hit me. Um, that, wow, we have a lot of work in our communities, whether indigenous or non-indigenous, um, to do. And coming back to what both Helen and Joy was talking about, that's important. We go back to those rites of passage, yeah. and those rites of passage from the time a child is born. Because any little child just wants to be loved, cared for, hugged, valued and then taught and a part of that is us spending time with them and then the teaching them whether it's through storytelling but most importantly our own behavior okay and what's going on with that is, is that's not happening you know, as much as it used to be and you go through these kinds of rites of passage and everything and you're learning who you're supposed to be as not only in your community, but as a person. The naming ceremonies. A name is usually not given to a young child before birth, like a lot of people choose it now, because that hasn't been given life yet. You wait, and then you watch them and their behavior as they're growing up. And if they're greedy and they always want something, you give them a name that they don't like. And so a part of that lesson is, is that they'll change their behavior. You know, they want to be somebody that's a part of the community. They want to belong, and that's what we were talking about. Every person wants to belong. And if we don't do it, then they're going to be doing the gangs and other things like that because they want to be law. Okay, and that's scary. I got a little bit emotional from those responses, so thank you. <laughs> um, okay. And, and the belonging doesn't, you know, today often, and this isn't just for young people, I, I see it also uh, with those that we would categorize as adults. Um, you know, belonging, self-worth does not depend on how many likes you have on Facebook. <laughs> um, it doesn't depend on how well you, your body or your dress conforms to the latest fashion trend. Uh, so that if, if that's, if you feel like you're belonging, um, that's your only way to belong. 
then often you are you're always going to feel like you're shut out, like you you never measure up, and those are very false senses of belonging in any case. So community has to provide legitimate um, ways that will benefit everyone, and most importantly, that that young person uh, to belong. Okay, so um, <laughs> just as a, um, I have a question for you, Helen. Um, so um, I know um, as part of the um, uh, the uh, Kentucky Native American Heritage Commission, you were the chair, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, so um, I was looking on the on the web page, and um, there were like these like kind of like educational sort of uh, like objectives, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, uh, and I thought that was like really interesting and just so important. Um, but I wondered if you could um, explain a little bit more about like, just exactly like why is it so important to integrate a better understanding of um, just, uh, I know I have Native American, Native American here, but we can say indigenous to broaden it out more, like indigenous history and heritage and school curriculum. And how might this help maybe push back against some of the historical depictions that we sometimes see in, in history books? One of the reasons that um, it's important to teach and to integrate information about the indigenous people who were on Turtle Island before the invasion is because if we do not know our history, we are bound to repeat our history. And in many ways, having been born just at the apex of what was going on in the world just before the United States entered into World War II, I can see firsthand how if we do not pay attention to our history, we're going to repeat it. One of Dwight Eisenhower's outgoing messages when he uh, left the presidency was be aware of the industrial and military complex. We're living that complex today. At the end of World War II, he instructed the people coming in liberating Germany, take pictures. Take pictures of everything you can. Don't spare it. Take pictures of the crematorium. Take pictures of the piles of body because there will come a generation that will say it never happened. We are living that today. We are living today with people who say indigenous peoples never lived in Ohio, Kentucky, Virginia, West Virginia, and we are here. We never left. If we do not integrate into our educational system the history of those people, our people, our ancestors, we will truly, truly become extinct. It will be as if we never saw the face of this earth. So it is of utmost importance that we educate as many people as we can, as correctly as we can about who we are, who we were, 
what our traditions were, our love of the land. For all indigenous people on Turtle Island, we understand in our spiritual practice that the Creator gave us this land. Our job from the Creator is to take care of this land. If we don't take care of this land, we have failed in what our original instructions from our Creator is. That needs to be in the educational system. That needs to be understood. Because from that then can come some form of understanding of what we're doing to the land, some form of understanding what is going on in the air, some form of what is going to be our extinction if we don't pay attention now. Absolutely, and that is a point that absolutely needs to be driven home. Joy? And, and I would build on that by saying that I, I think our greatest challenge in the world today, I mean, our greatest challenge, I agree, has to deal with environmental concerns right now. But I've always sort of thought that um, at a certain point, Mother Earth will take care of herself and we'll be the ones that will be gone. <laughs> I think, though, our, our real great challenge, and this is globally, really, we see this conflict all around the world. We are, all of us, living in multicultural societies. There is no, this is, this is my neck of the woods. We don't want you here. We're going to force you. We're going to build a wall. We're going to force you out. We're going to keep you out. That is no longer an option. No. It, it, I mean, I don't agree with that option, but it's just not viable. So we have to find a way to not just coexist, not just to not kill each other, uh, but to build on each other's strengths and each other's, to build on diversity. Diversity is going to allow us to survive. Understanding that there are many ways of thinking and being in this world, and some of them far less destructive than what the dominant society is doing today. And so we, we need to find ways to listen to each other. Uh, the polarization is just frightening. And it's palpable. Um, it, it is everywhere. And we need to find ways to listen to each other, really listen. And through listening, you can learn and you can begin to reevaluate your own perspectives and thinking. I mean, this is why I, I do so much uh, cross-cultural work in, in my classes, because I really think that's the most important thing that I, that I do. I think an important part of it is, regardless of what your roots are, what peoples you come out of, what your teachings are, if you're not living them and you're starting to buy into today's society, today's society literally has to do with how important you are, how much money you make, you know, where you are. And a part of that is so you're above other people and how you use those people and everything else. Now, it doesn't matter whether you're native, African-American or anything else, if you're doing the same thing, you're doing the same thing, okay? We have to change our behavior. 
when I saw you tear up a few minutes ago, I was looking at you and I was, I was thinking, because in the work that I do with the suicide prevention, we cannot see somebody that's hurting, a child or anybody else, and say, how are you doing? And then when they start tearing up or I don't feel very well, you can't say, oh, I hope you feel better and walk away. <laughs> Okay, a part of what we have to do is we have to take the time to give of ourselves to help other people. Okay, and that is critical because we're seeing this disintegration of our Mother Earth and the resources and the peoples around us. Now we have to care enough to give of ourselves to make the changes. And most people are not doing that yet. They're thinking, as long as I get mine. And we're taught to think seven generations ahead for our children, our grandchildren, etc., like that. That's our teachings. But so many of us are not doing that anymore. Wow. <laughs> well, um, okay, I think I'm going to have to wrap it up, unfortunately. But... Um, well, thank you all so much for um, sitting down to talk with me. I This was really a, just an amazing conversation, and I'm really, really glad that I got to talk with you all today. So thank you very much. Thank you. The music for this special episode of Humanities Unbound was performed live by Frank Otero. Humanities Unbound is hosted and executively produced by the Taft Research Center director, Dr. Amy Lind. Sean Keating Crawford is a producer and manager, and Caitlin Lusher is a producer and the editor for the podcast. Technical equipment and support are provided by the Student Technical Resources Center at the University of Cincinnati and the STRC director, Jay Sennard. Episode transcripts are transcribed by Carrie Eason and are available on the Taft Research Center website. Stay tuned for more episodes of Humanities Unbound.